Sarah's quite a fireball. If you don't know her, um, she, she's a great example of the fact that mission is not limited by where we are or where we can get to, but that we can live out mission everywhere we go. My, my grandmother, when she was in her 80s, was pretty much confined to her home. And I remember one of the guys at my church saying, when your grandmother says she's going to pray for you, it feels like a threat. <laughs> and that, Sarah's kind of like that. She's going to go for, you know, she's going to pray. She's going to do her mission. I want to encourage all of you to look for your mission during these weird times and live that out. Um, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5 today, 2 Kings 5. Uh, we're in our season of foundations. We're wrapping up that season of the year pretty soon and going to move into uh, Advent. Advent's going to be a bit different this year, isn't it? Because we can't all get together the way we normally do, but, but it might actually even be a bit better if you're willing to let it be that. Right now, though, we're still looking at the history of Israel through the monarchy. Last week, we saw the kingdom divide. We saw the way that the, the, the powerful often use that religious impulse in human beings for control. Um, Today, the story continues. Now, we're going to jump quite a bit ahead, about 60 or 70 years ahead. Uh, like I said, last week, the kingdom had just split, but the story continues with this consistent theme of failure on, on the part of the kings, both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we're going to see how, how God speaks into that through the words of the prophet. It, it's, it's a divided kingdom, north and south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And you remember that moment in the text last week when, when uh, Rehoboam said, no, we're, it's going to be tough on you guys from the north. You're going to have to continue to work. And then in, in 1 Kings 12, 16, they said, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Look after your own household, David. There's that splitting of the kingdom and, and how the north, Jeroboam set up these shrines so that people would worship to keep them from coming to Jerusalem. But on both sides, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, we see a decline in faithfulness, a decline in faithfulness. There's a, there's a great, I, I love these Bible project videos. If you ever want to learn the Bible, go Google Bible project their videos are fascinating and incredibly strong teaching tools. And it talks about this book of Kings. First and second Kings was one book. And this one section, when it divided into two kings, we'll just run that little one-minute video clip here. We got it? From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings. And as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating. If you're reading through Kings, you'll see that. It'll talk about the king, and it'll evaluate the king by those criteria. And like he says, the northern kingdom, zero for 20 good kings. The southern kingdom, eight out of 20. So 12 bad, eight good. So out of the whole 40 kings that you see through this divided monarchy, only eight meet the criteria of, of encouraging people to follow Yahweh. To address this wandering away, we see the rise of the prophets. That's where they come in, the rise of the prophets, these, these people speaking the word of God to these kings. This prophetic role is really important when it comes speaking the truth to the power that is. 
right? And, and as this video continues for about another minute on the Bible Project, it's going to talk a little bit about that. Roll that second video. A huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nation, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. So, you know, when you hear the word prophet in the scripture, sometimes when we think of prophet, we think of telling the future, right? That's, that's what they do. And sometimes that's involved, but the point of the prophets in the Old Testament was they spoke the word of God to the king, to the people, to remind them where they had strayed from what God was calling them to. That was the role of the prophets. And you see Elijah and Elisha, both prophets in the northern kingdom, in, in Kings, in this section of Kings. And today we're going to pick up the text in chapter 5, when Elisha is a prophet speaking to the northern kingdom. Now, I'm, I'm going to read, we have a new Bible up here, Jake's uncle gave us a pulpit Bible, which is nice because it's big print. That's the big reason we're going for it, because I can actually see this one. Every now and then I'm, when I'm reading it in mine, I think, okay, am I reading her heresy or not? This one's got big print, but it's ESV. It's a bit different than what I normally read, the NIV, but let's listen to the text of 2 Kings 5 uh, in the ESV. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him... The Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Arbana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father... It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. If, if it, is a great, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you, will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. 
And then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or a sacrifice to any God but the Lord. And in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. And so Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please them give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in their house. And then he sent the men away and they departed. And he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go with Go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you. Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Now, I love this story. I remember this story from years and years and years ago when I was a kid in Sunday school. What I hadn't noticed recently is that this story of Naaman is a story full of contrasts. It, it pits two ideas against each other. It, it highlights the differences between them. He's, he's from Syria or Aram. He's an Aramean commander. There's a map, I think. Did I get that map to you guys? I can't remember. Yeah, there's a map here. If you see Israel's the blue there and Aram or Syria is in the circle there. It's, it's this northern neighbor of the kingdom. And, and like neighbors don't always get along, there were these constant conflicts between Aram and Israel. And when, when our story takes place, it's actually a time of relative peace, although tensions are high. You can imagine they border each other. There's always these skirmishes going on. Things are going okay during this time. Uh, and, and this story that's told about the commander of Aram, of Syria, Naaman, who comes to Israel to get help, like I say, is a story of contrast. I'm going to look at four of those contrasts, and then we're going to back, and we're going to kind of go in looking at the four, and then we're going to kind of back our way out looking at how we can apply those to our lives. The first contrast I see is the true king and the kings. The story picks up with the tensions that are going on politically, and there's an interesting phrase in verse 1 where it says, He was a great man, Naaman, in the sight of his master, and he was highly regarded because through him, Naaman the Syrian, the Lord had given victory to his country. Through him, the Lord had given victory. Now, the story starts at the beginning by noting who is actually in charge of what's happening in reality. The Lord had given victory to this other country, Syria or Aram. Remember back at the end of, of Samuel's life when the people came to him back in 1 Samuel 8, 
but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us, and then we'll be like the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. They got this king. Now, in fact, they've got two kings. They've got one in the north and one in the south, and they're still struggling because they've rejected the true king, the one who's driving all of history. See, the story starts off by saying, you've got your kings, but you're still not in control because the Lord has given victory to Aram. The king they had that led them out of Egypt, out of captivity, they rejected that king to have a visible king. That's one contrast you see. Then there's another one between the slave girl and the king that's in power at the moment. See, during one of the conflicts with Israel, Naaman's army had taken captive a little girl from Israel, brought her back home, and she served Naaman's wife. Now, you can't just say that without thinking about the implications of that, right? Imagine her situation. She's been human trafficked is what's happened to put it in normal terms. An army has gone in, they've captured her, kidnapped her, taken away from her family, from her home, from everything she knows, and now she's serving Naaman's wife. And yet here she is, she's the one that says, oh, if he only went back to the prophet, he could be healed of his leprosy. If you're looking for a Christ figure in this story, it's this little girl. She's the one who's been captured, taken from her home, placed into slavery and still wants good for her oppressor. If only he could go back and talk to the prophet. But then you compare her with the king that Naaman actually goes to. His name's Joram. It doesn't say it in the text. But in verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter from Syria, he tore his robes and he said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? Do you see the contrast? You've got this little slave girl who's been captured who is completely powerless and she wants the best. All she can think of is the best for her owner, for her master. And the king hears this story and all he can think of is the expectations and the potential of war. Why does the king of Syria send him here? He's trying to pick a fight with me. Do you see the difference in their responses to the exact same situation. See, I think this contrast is drawn because it shows the way God likes to do things. This is how he does things. Isaiah eleven six: the wolf will lie with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Right? A little child. They wanted a king to lead them. Now they had two kings. They had a king in the north and a king in the south. And yet the one who's actually being faithful and trusting is this little child taken away in slavery, serving her oppressor. But Naaman goes, which leads us to the next contrast, right? He goes, he sees the king. The king's terrified, but Elisha hears about it. Elisha says, send him to me. And Naaman comes and stands at the door of Elisha's house. And that's where we see the contrast between the spectacular or quiet surrender. You know, imagine the scene, the great chariot, the great commander, horses, chariots pull up in front of the prophet's house. He's coming in all his splendor with these, you know, mules or whatever full of gifts that he's going to leave. (laughs) This is the guy that struck fear into the king when he went to see the king of Israel. The guy was like, what's he trying to pick a fight with me? He was terrified. And he pulls up at Elisha's door and Elisha doesn't even come out. 
Elisha sends his servant out. Do you get that? Do you get the power dynamics at play there? Here's this guy coming in with everything, going to be healed by the prophet, and the prophet sends his servant down, and his servant says, oh yeah, the prophet says, go wash seven times in the Jordan. And that's not what Naaman was expecting, right? He wanted some big ceremony. He wanted pomp and circumstance. He wanted, he wanted things to, you know, the prophet to come out and call upon the name of his God and wave his hand over my leprosy and I would be cured. He had it all played out. He, he wanted the spectacular. He wanted the event. We, we do the same thing. <laughs> how many have always, how many of you have said at some point in your life, I just want to know God's will for my life. I just want to know what he wants me to do. I just want to know. You want, I want it written on the sky. And God says things that aren't fun, like be kind to your neighbor and love those people who make your life hard and serve and forgive, right? We want the spectacular. We want those big, powerful moments. We want that feeling when we're worshiping God. Oh, he's here. We want the spectacular instead of quiet surrender. And, and luckily, once again, the servants are way smarter than the masters because Naaman is angry. He's upset. How dare he ask me to do this? We've got rivers at home that are a lot cleaner than the Jordan. I could have done that there. Why? And the servants are like, uh, Naaman, you know, if he'd asked you to go chop off a dragon's head, you probably would have tried to do that. He, all he said is go, go take a bath seven times. Why not at least try it? See, they understood what God was asking for was simple, quiet surrender, not the spectacular. It says in 1 Samuel 15, 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of ram. See, Naaman rebels against the idea, but he finally gives in and he goes down and he washes and he's healed. Imagine that, leprosy, no cure. He comes out of the water, he looks at whatever the spot is where he sees the leprosy, and it's gone. So he goes back to the prophet's house. This time he sees the prophet, he wants to leave a gift. Here, come on, I brought all this stuff. Thank you so much, I can't believe. I only want to worship God from here on out. And this is where we see the contrast between the commander, Naaman, and the servant, Gehazi. Gehazi just can't stomach all that stuff going back for no good reason. <laughs> He makes a plan to himself. Who will ever know, right? Who's ever going to know if I go and I get it and I tuck it away? And I mean, I've got a, this, this servant of a prophet job is not the best pay. I've got to worry about my retirement. I've got to think ahead. I've got to be smart. And all this stuff is just going. And I could have some of that and tuck it away. And you see what, what you see there is this commander who's learned to receive from God, even if he can't do the spectacular or give. He's learned to receive but the servant just had to have more. There's a tension between having and letting go. Read in the passage today, Geary read, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You see, you see these contrasts. You have the king of all and the king's. You have the servant girl and the present king. That's the third one. You have the spectacular and the quiet surrender. And you have the commander and the servant. You see these contrasts in the story. And it's a story that still speaks to us today. We're going to look at them in reverse order. And I just want to try to pull an application out of each one to, to get you to think about in our own life. There's some very specific 
and concrete messages as we move backwards. First, Gehazi, the servant who went to get the stuff and Naaman, the commander. The question there for us, I think, is will you receive or will you take? Now, that sounds really weird. Will you receive? Isn't it the same thing? No, it's not. Will you receive what's given or will you grasp after and take what you want? The story doesn't say that the stuff is bad. It doesn't say that Naaman had all this horrible stuff and Elisha, for moral reasons, rejected it. Elisha just realized that that was not what this was about. This wasn't about the, the, the commander of another nation coming and buying his healing. This, that's not what it's about, Elisha said. Just go. It's a gift from God. Elisha says in verse 26, Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, or men servants or maidservants? See, the problem is not the stuff itself. The problem is the timing and the context around it. Because once you receive that, it's as if he's purchased this healing. And what God wanted was to give it to him. And he received it and left. But Gehazi had to take something for himself. He had to worry about his own situation in this. He had to, to try to store up for a rainy day. And it reminds me of a story back in the garden in Genesis 3. The woman said to the serpent who came out, you know, we can eat fruit from, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it and the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. God had given them so much and he put this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know what it doesn't say in Genesis? I've said this before. It doesn't say, I'm never going to let you know the difference between good and evil. What he says is you can't pursue that knowledge on your own. You need to let me give that to you. You need to receive that instead of taking it. But Satan said, you're missing something. And that's what Satan does. He takes the focus off of what God has done for us, what he's given to us, what we've received, and tries to put on the area where we haven't received yet. He says, you've got to take this. If you don't take it for you, how are you ever going to get it? Human nature ever since has focused on what, what we need to take for ourselves instead of what God has actually given to us. And we do, it, we do it physically, materially, as we overspend to get things. We get into debt. We get into huge financial issues with our materialism because I've just got to have that. But we also do it spiritually by trying to force and manipulate things to happen the way we want them to happen. We try to take the situation and shape it how we want it to be instead of receiving the way God's leading. We manipulate to get what, what we want. Gehazi thinks there's no good reason for that stuff to go back. I can make it happen. And Elisha says, this is not the time for that, Gehazi. This is not the time for that. You know, maybe God is calling you right now in some situation in your life to wait, to just let it play out, to see what happens. And yet you're trying to take it. You're trying to manipulate it. You're trying to pull all the strings and make this thing work out when you just need to rest. Now the contrast just before that has to do with Naaman and his desire for the spectacular. And this is, 
this application for us is fairly easy. It's, it's the problem with our ego. We tend to want to be the center and the star of our own story. We want things to work out well for us. We want to view the world from our perspective. And Naaman had a story. I can see him. He must have had some hope because he played it out in his mind. I'm going to go there to the prophet. Okay, the king didn't know what he was doing, but the prophet is going to come down. He's going to call. I don't know how he envisioned it, but it was going to be a big thing, right? Because he was playing it out the way he wanted it to be. And it hurt his feelings that the servant came out. And it wasn't a big ceremony at all. In fact, the prophet didn't even go with him. He was just supposed to go, I trust you, go down there and wash yourself off seven times in the river. You know, sometimes the way we've played things out to be is way more about us. <laughs> when I was a young man, five years ago, just kidding. When I was a young man, I had big dreams. I mean, and they were good dreams. I, I had dreams about what I wanted to do for the kingdom of God and how I was going to make it happen. And this sounds so silly when I say it, but can I, can I just be really vulnerable in front of you guys? I remember being in a, in a history of missions class in university and wondering one day, I just thought, maybe my name will be in one of these books one day. And it wasn't a bad desire or a bad dream. I wanted to do big things for God. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to be these people I was reading about. The pr problem is, um, it was me trying to do this stuff. And I ran up against my limitations and my brokenness and my weakness and my lack of discipline, all these things. And, and it was... <laughs> It was good for me, for those dreams to die. Not that I still don't want to make an impact for the kingdom of God. But do you see what? Those dreams were all about me. They were about the spectacular. And, and God had to take me through this, boom. What if nothing ever happens for you, Jeff? What if nobody shows up at your funeral? What, what if? Can you just trust me? And man, that was a hard, it's still something I fight with, but it, it's the death of our ego, and that has to happen. Sometimes we want the spectacular. Uh, I, I just didn't realize when I was talking about the spectacular that my relationship with God was 98% about me and 2% about what God wanted. If I can elevate myself and do something good for God, it's a win-win situation. That's the way I looked at it. But slowly and fairly gently, God stripped those dreams away. And I still want to be used for the kingdom, but it's a whole different sense. And it takes the pressure off. It's about what God's doing, not what I'm doing. You know, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. This is such a profound part of the spiritual journey where you come to the end of yourself and you think, I just can't do this anymore. And God says, finally, you got it. You can't do it anymore. Of course you can't. Now let go of that. Stop trying to do the spectacular. Stop trying to cast yourself in the, the, the e true series of your life or whatever that's going to be in the documentary. Stop trying to do that and just follow me. We have to hit a wall to be confronted with our own weakness to move from the spectacular to just surrender. And lots of times it's, we feel broken when that happens and we think, what have I done wrong? You're, not done you're, you're on the journey. You're actually making progress even though it feels like you're not. From wanting to do things for God to do, doing what God wants. And so many of my own struggles have been 
when I've hidden my own ego in spiritual terms. We do this all the time in the church. We have these, these egos, and the pastors are horrible at this. We have these wonderful plans for us, and we couch them in spiritual terms so that if you guys don't help us, you feel guilty. That's, that's our master manipulative tactic. And, and I've seen people de devastated by churches who try to manipulate them to do things for the, for the leadership or the church's own glory. We have to let go of the spectacular and follow in quiet surrender. God doesn't need us. He wants us. If you've ever done, well, let me give you two sides of the coin, and I'm not going to make them gender specific because I wouldn't want to be derogatory in any way. But have you ever baked with your kids? Or have you ever done yard work with your kids when they're little? Have you ever done either one of those things? Let me ask you the question. Could you have done it more efficiently yourself? Could there have been less cleanup, less flowers cut? <laughs> I'm laughing because Madison's in here somewhere. And I, there she is. And Madison used to always want to cut the grass. Yes. And she got good at it. But the first couple of times she did it, I basically had to go recut the whole yard when she was gone. Right? It would have been more efficient. But what, why do we do that? Because we want the relationship. That's why we bake with our kids. That's why we do yard work. We want them with us. We could do it easier. We could accomplish. God could do his task easier without us. But he invites us into this relationship and says, come along with me and let me teach you something as we do this. That brings us to the contrast of King Joram and the servant girl. And God tips his hand in this. We begin to see one of these things. It's a million times in the Bible you'll find this idea that God works from weakness. This is so foreign to our ways of thinking. We always think we've got to find the best, the strongest, the most well-liked, the best received. And we think, ah, now that we have this, this is something God can use. Our church programs, our, our mu everything has to be the best because God will use it if it's really, really good. But the opposite is, is what we see in Scripture. God often works from weakness. When he wants to heal the Syrian commander, Naaman, he doesn't have the prophet ride in on a chariot and say, I'm going to show you who's the true God, not this Rimmon that you bow to. It's me. Boom. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have the king come and conquer his army and then... He has the servant girl, the weakest person in the whole story, has a vision of what God could do and is used in an incredible way. God works from weakness. That's, that's, it's all through the scripture. Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, has this thorn in the flesh. We don't even know what it was, but he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. See, we like to hide our weaknesses because we don't think God uses the weakness. We think he uses the good. And, and so we try to take our weakness and make it look good. We try to take, we, we want the spectacular. It's got to be powerful because that's what God can use. We look to the king. We look to the gifts that we bring. We look to powerful methods. And God uses a gracious servant girl to send her captor toward healing. See, the point here, I think, and, and we get to it with that first contrast, is, is we've got to remember the gift of neediness. The gift of neediness. That first comparison had to do with the ultimate king and all the kings that Israel and Judah had, right? 
They wanted a king, a visible king, because we feel naked without one. We want to be like all the other countries. They all have kings that lead them in the battle, and we don't. We're needy. They tried to hide their neediness by getting a physical king to rule over them. And the truth is, they had the king of kings. Their neediness was just a reminder of who actually was. It wasn't wrong for them to say we don't have a physical king because the next breath in that sentence is we've got the king of kings leading us. The gospel is counterintuitive, radically counterintuitive. And it calls us, first of all, before we do anything, to admit our need. I need you, God. I can't do anything without you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things. Did God choose you? <laughs> Listen to your description. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. What does that even mean? To nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Notice the key to this story is not the king of Aram or the king of Israel. It's not Naaman, the commander of Aram's armies. It's the captive servant girl. The neediest person in the whole story is the hero that brings about the steps that need to happen for Naaman to be healed. She acts like Jesus. She takes the one who has captured her, kidnapped her, forced her into slavery, and she says, I want the best for you. In my weakness, I want you to be healed. That's Jesus. It's all over that. And the beauty is we are the weak and captive servant girl. How many of you admit we're weak? We, we mess up all the time. Thank you, Pauline. Me and you. It's only me and Paul. We're messing up all the time. You're saying yes for me. Okay, thank you very much. It's good that she clarified that. We struggle, but instead of hiding that struggle, can we not just lift it up to God and say, even in weakness, that's what you use. Hey, I've got all the weakness you want, God. I've got a full cup of weakness right here. Take it and use it however you want. I, I was going through some quotes by Frederick Buechner. I, I love this guy. He's a, a pastor. And I was going through some quotes of his just for fun, and I came across this one. He says, quote, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Remember that story? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief is the best any of us can do, really. But thank God it's enough. I love that line. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's the best I can do. Thank God, he says, that it's enough to acknowledge your own weakness to God, to, let, to be the servant girl and do what you can, even in your weakness and your brokenness, and see lives changed of the very people who are against you. In our weakness, we see the strength of God come through. And if we trust, if we follow in quiet surrender, we'll see lives transformed. That's, that's our, you know, we want to see lives renewed, community transformed by the power of the gospel. That's on the bulletin board out there. And the way we do that is not by being the best professional church. I, I want to do things well. Don't get me wrong. The way we do that is by being honest about our weakness and saying, God, show up in my weakness and use that for your glory. Let's pray. God, it's a story that happened so long ago with Naaman. I can't imagine his ride home knowing he was healed. I, I often wonder, too, what happened to this servant girl? God, we don't know. Wish we did. 
But I pray, God, that we can take her example to heart. We can look at situations where we feel out of control, where we feel powerless. Situations where people are taking advantage of us, maybe, where people are making our lives difficult. And that we can respond in graciousness and kindness because of what you've done for us. That we can let our weakness be the seedbed where your strength is made perfect. That we can remember that your grace is sufficient and that, that you don't need us, that you invite us to be a part of what you're doing. Help us this week as we come into these places of weakness. As we acknowledge, as we, as we see it when we look in the mirror, as we know our own brokenness and our failures, God, help us not to give up, but to realize that this is the place where you can actually begin to work if we will surrender our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know how you're going to come face to face with your weakness this week. Maybe it's, maybe it's your dream of something great that's coming down on you. Maybe it's someone that's hurt you and you just can't handle the hurt anymore. It's just, and it just exacerbates your feeling of weakness and powerlessness. But in that moment, I want you to remember this little servant girl who had every right as an oppressed human being created in the image of God to say, oh, I hope he dies. I hope leprosy, I hope he suffers the way I've had to suffer. She had every right to do that. And yet, centuries before Jesus shows up, she acts with graciousness and kindness and love and says, I want the best for that person. In her weakness, she makes a way for Jesus to come in and use his strength through her. And, and in that moment, when you come face to face with weakness, I hope you can just say, God, I'm, I can't do this. And hear him saying, okay, now that we've got that straight, now that we've worked that out, let me go to work. That's my prayer for you this week, that you can rest in your weakness or brokenness knowing that all the way my Savior leads me. That, that no matter where I'm at right now, it's not by mere coincidence. He has guided me to this place so that he can work through my life. Amen.